This episode of the History Files is brought to you by Audible. Visit audibletrial.com/historyfiles to start your free trial membership. Many, many years ago. Building of human rights. The guns at Malta evoke again the echo. In June 1948, all road and rail communication. Some things just aren't easy to explain. The History Files. We bring history to you. Welcome to episode 76 of the History Files, coming to you from the second week of November 2016 here in the Pacific Northwest. We're, yeah, we're still watching Westworld. It's, uh, I don't know, what are we up to? Well, we're up to the latest episode as of this week, and uh, it's very compelling. Yeah, it never disappoints. It's, it's very good. Yeah, it's, it's, kind of still of a, it's kind of still a parade of bad hats. Um, even though there's some really great costuming in it. Just, what, what is it with the hats and these things? They just never seem to get them quite right. And uh, also, I don't know, it's HBO and it's the modern world. And I guess we don't watch enough television, but man, sometimes I think they should just call this F-world. It's like, what's with all the F-bombs? And the I, yeah, I don't know. I don't know anybody who talks like that, but maybe I'm just weird. Uh, but still, a uh, really great story. Um, there were some fun little Easter eggs in the last episode hearkening back to the original movie. Which, oh, yeah, that was, was very cool. Yeah, which was kind of fun. Uh, little visual Easter eggs, which was nice. And, yeah, it's in fact, this whole last episode was pretty Crichton-esque. It was very... Tone-wise, it reminded me of the classic Andromeda Strain and the original Westworld. There was a lot of tech, and there was a lot of intrigue and a lot of escalating stakes, and I really felt like I was watching a Michael Crichton movie. So, yeah, it's kind of fun. Um, I don't know. It's just too bad to me that HBO is so invested in the profanity and the nudity because otherwise I could imagine kids watching this with their parents because it's really inter- an interesting story, you know, the way I watched the original with my dad when I was little. But eh, this one with all the boobs and the butts and the F-bombs, not so much. Yeah, it's, it's a little extreme sometimes. At any rate, kind of sort of inspired by Westworld and by a couple of romance novels I've read in the last six months, for research purposes, I was inspired to ping Gordon to talk about cowboys Cowboys. Yeah, which is something he's had a little bit of experience actually doing, but, you know, lots of experience pretending to do, too, on on, uh, film and television. Uh, you know, how, cowboys, fact and fiction, how are they represented and misrepresented in fiction? And what, what was the reality? So that's going to be our topic today. This is Hollywood. Sporting cast of thousands. What else came of my trip to the library? Romance, education, entertainment. In case you missed it, our episode last week was all about historical election shenanigans. And uh, in case you haven't listened to that episode yet, in light of the current situation in the United States and that we have just apparently elected a new president, you might find it interesting. If, if, if you think this is crazy time and and, uh, and it things, is. things have never been weirder, well, it's actually been pretty weird in the past, too. Yeah, this, is, this isn't too outrageous by comparison, although it is pretty pretty wild and crazy. Um, 
it's still, you know, there there have been some pretty crazy elections in the past as well. But for our um, our overseas viewers who are wondering what on earth is this electoral college they keep ta- talking about, uh, we go into a little bit of detail to discuss that. Yeah, so check out episode 75, our last week's episode of the History Files for all that nonsense. Also, over on YouTube, check out our new channel, Bad Cat Productions. Right now, I'm cutting together some footage from Gordon's gun talk at SteamCon 2 that um, ran for five years in Seattle. All, and this, was all, this one was all about firearms of the American West, so kind of appropriate for today, too. I should have that up in a few days. So I'll have a link in the show notes for that. We already have a few things up over there, including a trailer for this show. Uh, also, apropos of today's topics, how about some books? We haven't recommended books in a while. We got a couple of goodies today. Yeah, uh, Ranch Life on the Hunting Trail by Theodore Roosevelt. He published that, I believe, it was eighteen eighty-eight or eighty-nine. It's it's a wonderful book. Uh, Roosevelt was a fine writer, and by nineteenth-century standards, he was very clipped and abrupt, which means he's just about right for the modern reader. And um, he has some really funny anecdotes in there, and it gives a good good idea of what was going on in the Dakotas in the 1880s. It's, it's a very, very well-written book by a man who was there and did that. The link I'm going to put in the show notes is actually for the complete text. It's at archive.org, and uh, so you can read the whole thing right there online. Hey, you don't have to buy a copy. Yeah, or you could if you want to. Uh, the other one we're going to recommend is, oddly enough, from a Time Life series. Some people like to poo-poo those old Time Life series as kind of cursory treatments of their topics, but... The, um, their it, Old it, West series is actually really, really good. Yeah, it's a good survey course. It's it's a good survey of what was going on, what a cowboy was all about. Yeah. It gets into the history of before and during and after. And so, of course, this one is the one titled The Cowboys, the Cowboys by yeah. William H. Forbus. And it's in that Time Life Old West series. Your library probably has it. You're going to see it at the thrift stores. It's the one that looks like it's bound in, it's like fake tooled leather. They're actually kind of a, a handsome set yeah. of books. And they're actually worth the money because, you, you know, you're probably only going to spend a few dollars on each one. Mm-hmm. And just about every used bookstore in the country probably has several sets of them. Yeah. yeah. So pick up the Cowboys. There's a lot of them, and they're all pretty decent. And uh, I think they're worth the money for sure. History lives again. I come out of Austin's fair city, all Austin's fair city, all Austin's fair city, it was early one day. I spied a young cowboy, a handsome young cowboy, all dressed in white linen and cold as the clay. I see by your outfit that you are a cowboy. Well, I read and hear the term cowboy misused a lot, mostly in fiction. I recently read a romance novel where the male protagonist referred to himself and was referred to as a cowboy, despite the fact that he was a prospector. He was prospecting for ore. He was more like a mining engineer. Uh, but, you know, oh, cowboy, you're cowboying around. You sure look like a cowboy today, Bob. You know, whatever it was. I'm like, what? 
So I keep hearing the term cowboy to describe various folks, even in Westworld, in the first couple of episodes especially. And these guys aren't cowboys either. They're either just like generic gunslinger gunslinger number two or just whatever. But, you know... They're basically really all hat and no cattle. They, 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 <laughs> yes. they just, to use a, a, a turn of phrase, you know, they're not cowboys at all. In fact, the only cowboy in the whole thing is Dolores's dad, and he's more of a rancher who would hire cowboys. Right. So, you know, it's it's um. I get the impression that a lot of writers have a hard time getting out of the 21st century mindset where cowboy, quote-unquote, means guy in wide-brimmed hat, packing pistol and riding a horse. You know, never mind what his actual profession might really be. And I also, in my own experience, I think, it was, I'm, I get the impression that it was, at least in the beginning, a kind of a derogatory term back in the 19th century, as far yeah. as I can tell. And it's n- not the romantic honorific that it evolved into. So, uh, yeah. So anyway... I'm going to hand it over to you, Gordon, and uh, let's educate ourselves about what's a cowboy. Okay, to begin with, the term cowboy means a very specific job. It's a very specific job description. It's a guy who works with cattle. And uh, the term cowboy itself came from a, uh, as as she earlier said, a, a rather derogatory term for cattle rustlers in the American Revolution. And usually they were uh, loyalists who were, um, you know, at least this is what I have read. They're loyalists who were stealing cattle from the patriots, but also would steal like a, a cow's bell and the cow. And then when the farmer goes out to look at look for his cow, uh, they ring the little cow's bell and he goes looking for it One walks into an ambush. So... The term cowboy was definitely not a a good term. So they were like, like uh, to someone traveling, they were like, a, uh, you know, as a highwayman would be to a traveler. These guy, a cowboy, would be the same thing only to a rancher. Yeah, or, yeah, yeah, a farmer. Yeah, yeah, or a farmer. I mean, that's pretty despicable. Yeah, <laughs> this is true. It was not a, a positive term. Um, the the job description, though, herding cattle, goes as far back as you can go when our earliest ancestors figured out that rather than hunting cattle, uh, it was easier to form a more symbiotic relationship with them and herd them instead. And I'm sure the earliest ones was very much like the um, the Laps or the Sumi mm-hmm. in, in Lapland with their reindeer herds. And that reindeer aren't exactly uh, domesticated, but they aren't exactly wild either. Oh, it's, it just struck me. It's funny how we still have today the term shepherd, but the term cowherd is right. much, much rarer to hear. You'll, you'll see it in maybe a fantasy novel or a historical fiction or something like that, but no one... That's I, because I, the shortened version has a lot of negative connotations. From coward. shepherd to coward, yes. Oh, yeah. is that where it comes from? I believe so. I may be mistaken, but I believe it is. A cowherd is somebody who he runs away when trouble shows oh. instead of uh, standing and fighting. Oh, welcome to this week's episode of, of, of etymology. etymology. Yeah. <laughs> the etymology files. Yeah, but um, some some people were doing the, um, you know, the herding on foot, the laps, they put saddles on their 
reindeer and ride them. Um, and cows have been known to be ridden, although not very often. Uh, but it wasn't really until the horse uh, was was domesticated and made big enough to ride. And that took a while, actually, because, of course, first you had chariots and wagons and whatnot. Finally, they were big enough for a small man to ride or a, a young man. And then eventually two um, you know, grown men could ride them. And that really gave mastery over the, uh, the other four-footed uh, animals of the plains. And with that, you get the beginnings of like, what you might call cowboy culture. You get specific saddles and whatnot. But modern American cowboy culture is directly descended from Spanish colonial vaquero culture uh, of uh, Mexico. And the what, ev- virtually everything we think of as being part of being a cowboy uh, comes from this vaquero culture in Mexico, and it moved north with um, with the Spanish uh, population, the Spanish-Mexican population who uh, colonized north into Texas and New Mexico and California, and uh, they developed various techniques and various types of uh, various technologies that um, that are basically what we think of as cowboy. It's kind of interesting that the idea of roping cattle seems to have a, developed in Mexico. And because other places, they use things like bolos to, you know, with the trip, uh, them up. trip them up. Uh, or in Spain, they use lances to knock them over. They knock the, the cattle over and then jump on them and tie them up. The Mexican vaqueros use a uh, riata, the lariat. What is uh, interesting is that at first they seem to have tied them, tied the one end of the riata to the end of the horse's tail. <laughs> okay, that's a terrible idea. <laughs> yeah, it didn't last too long, but there are there are several illustrations of this. So that seems to have been the first thing, and then it didn't take them too awful long to notice that this the 17th century uh, Spanish saddle, uh, Spanish war saddle. So the, the Siesta Estradiota, I believe, um, had this thing that looked sort of like a horn on it. It was mostly for hanging your pistol holsters off of. It's like, oh, if we make that a little stronger, maybe we can wrap the rope around that. Use that for holding the riata. So somewhere in the late 17th, early 18th century, this started to catch on. And... Uh, at first, they probably did what the Texans called later hard and fast. You just tie it to the um, to this big protuberance, saddle horn, yeah. the saddle horn, this big chunk of wood. Also, a terrible idea. What oh, tying? tying yeah, yeah, yeah. There's there's plenty of good cowboy songs about uh, watching your saddle go down the drifting down the draw, mm-hmm. uh, being towed by a big. Uh, steer, steer, uh, and as you sit on the ground and your horse runs the other direction. So they fairly early on developed what was called Dar la Vuelta, or Dally. Anyway, the Mexican vaquero culture moved up into Texas, into New Mexico, into California, Arizona, and that is the basis of modern cowboy culture. 
the first Americans to run into this were the ones who moved into Texas in the 1820s and 30s. They ran into the, um, as they got around the area of San Antonio and whatnot, they ran into these vaqueros. And what the Texans ended up adopting originally for their what became cowboy culture was a combination of vaquero and southern black African techniques that their slaves brought with them. So there are certain African cattle herding techniques that were on foot that were used, and the Texans weren't real happy about the idea of roping cattle <laughs> to begin with because it's kind of a scary thing to tie yourself to this very large, often very angry animal. And it took a while for the Texans to adopt a lot of the vaquero attributes. The vaqueros, you know, they were, I mean, not that the Texans couldn't ride horses, but the vaqueros really could ride. And they took enormous pride in their horsemanship and their ability to rope. Texans were spending their time learning how to hunt and shoot. These guys were learning how to rope and ride. And so... You can see that to this day if you ever tune into one of these um oh the mexican rodeos mexican rodeos Ooh, they are insane those guys are good yeah they're amazing horsemen and uh anyway so those that was the first american experience but it wasn't too long after that that the americans started experiencing the california cowboys or the california vaqueros and this was through the hide trade uh yankee Ship owners and captains discovered that uh, California was extremely wealthy in cattle, but not much else. And there was a strong need in the Industrial Revolution for leather. The British had pretty much sewn up, as it were, the Argentine cowhide trade. And so we had to go further afield. And so California... And a cowhide went for about a dollar a piece. Oh, wow. And that was the only wealth that the Californios had in the 1830s was cattle. And they had plenty of them. So uh, there'd be what was called a matanzas, a slaughter. And these uh, specialists, napareros, would ride at full tilt up next to one of these cattle that's running away from him, pull out his knife, lean over and stab that cow right in the nape of the neck, thus Naparero, and kill it. And then his horse would dodge out of the way as his longhorned animal hits the dirt. And then the skinners would come along and skin him and lay out the, the hide. The meat was just left for the coyotes and bears uh, and wolves. And then the uh, few weeks later, whatever, Later, the dried hides would be collected and tossed off a cliff onto the beach. If you want a good first-hand account of that, pick up Two Years Before the Mast by Richard Henry Dana Jr. Absolutely. It's got a great, great, great scene in there of of them sailing these things down like Frisbees. Yeah, giant Frisbees. Like very heavy Frisbees. Yeah, about 100 pounds Mm -hmm. worth of Frisbee. (laughs) Duck! (laughs) Yeah, you don't want to catch one. No, and then the sailors having to carry them out into the surf to put on their boat and don't get it wet. But anyway... uh, these guys like Richard Henry Dana from New England were astonished at the horsemanship of these Californios. 
In fact, it was often said in later years that Americans, specifically Texans, used horses to herd cattle. The California cowboys used cattle to train their horses. So they were much more into the uh, into the horsemanship angle, and yeah, herding cattle is just that's the, what you do. It pays the bills. It pays the bills. The, the Texas cowboys were more into doing it because that's well, that's your job. You got to do this. So anyway, differences in outlook. Now, obviously, the, during the course of the Texas Republic. From the 1836 to 1845, and then in the 18 into the 1850s, in uh, Texas there was a growing industry of raising cattle, but there wasn't a huge outlet for it. Uh, it was definitely further inland than in California, and therefore it was harder to get the cow hides out to uh, out to the seacoast so that they could be shipped off to New England or wherever. So there wasn't a lot of money in cattle raising. And remember, we tend to think of cattle as being something you get meat from. Well, there was no refrigeration and no quick transportation. So it didn't matter. It was was left to rot for the most part. What you couldn't eat yourself, well, there it is. You might save some for winter by jerking it, and that's about as much as you could do with it. The, uh, The real boom, however, happened with the end of the American Civil War. There had been a few cattle drives up to Missouri from Texas in the 1850s. And of course, there were a lot of cattle that were driven to various railheads in eastern Texas during the Civil War to feed the Confederate armies. But with the fall of Vicksburg, well, that ended that. And so you had these millions of cattle let loose to do whatever they felt like doing, you know, basically procreating and increasing their numbers. Texas sent more men per capita to the Confederate armies than any of the other Confederate states. In fact, more than any other state in the Union had done. And the net result was that the Texas frontier moved 100 miles east during the course of that war because the Comanches and the Kiowa and the um, Lipan Apaches took gross advantage of the fact that most of the menfolk were gone and took their land back. So these Texans that were building ranches and stuff, well, those ranches were ruined the, and the cattle were let to run free. So you had these huge, huge herds of mixed cattle, wild cattle, and buffalo. And if you wanted to separate them, you'd charge in there yelling and shooting, and the buffalo would run to the open plains, and the cattle would run for the brush. And so you'd then have to go get them out of the bushes. And so you had guys named brush poppers or bush poppers who would do that job. Um, Buffalo, they they ignored because buffalo don't take well to being roped and things like that. They just, they have uh, certain adverse reactions. They just do their own thing. (laughs) Pretty much. Pretty much. If they can get their nose under it, they can go under it. If they can get their nose over it, they can go over it. Yeah. Yeah. They don't, don't fence me in, they say. Yes. And they're large. 
So and and very dense too. Their their meat is their bodies are much denser than yeah. cattle. Dense not as in stupid. Dense as in actually they have really thick skins and really thick skulls. Yes, <laughs> very much so. So with the return of these these uh, Texans back to their ruined cattle ranches, there's what do we do? We have millions of cattle here that are worth something, but how do we get them to market? One cattleman on a, uh, pretty much on a dare, took a herd clear to Manhattan. Others took them to Missouri, but Missouri at the time was full of bushwhackers and other fellow former Confederates who didn't take kindly and to that. And when you say took them, you mean in a drive? In a drive, Just yeah. Driving they, them they drove them in, in, in our a giant herd. Giant herd. Wow. Yeah. Um, it really was the railroad, uh, the Union Pacific specifically, and their eastern division uh, sending tracks across Kansas that that changed the entire uh, economy of Texas. It's kind of funny that it took high technology, railroads, to build the cowboy industry, which we tend to think of as being kind of low tech. So now all you had to do to get them from tech somewhere in Texas to market was to get them to a rail railroad right. stop somewhere. Right, exactly. And those happened to be in Kansas, which was a couple of states away. It's a ways. That's a ways. And there were there were herds brought clear from Mexico. Lots of herds brought from Mexico clear to Kansas. That's a long, 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 long way. It took at least a month, usually wow. a couple of months, to get a herd of cattle from, say, Corpus Christi all the way up to, uh, to Abilene, Kansas. Now, the real... <laughs> The real McCoy in this, what the guy that got this going was a guy named uh, Joe McCoy. And he noticed that the Eastern Division of the Union Pacific Railroad, later the Kansas Pacific, was taking all this freight westwards and deadheading, basically taking empties back, empty boxcars back. And he went to their um, salespeople and said, hey, look. If you build a spur, you know, a siding in this little town of Abilene, I'll put in a bunch of uh, stockyards and I'll get these Texans to bring up some cattle. And you can stuff them in your boxcars and send them to Chicago and make money going both ways. And they said, sounds like a deal to us. Here we go. So he bought like 250 acres outside of Abilene, Kansas. This little, wasn't even a cow town yet. It was just this little farming town. And then proceeded to send uh, ads in newspapers throughout Texas and sent agents there. And a guy named Jesse Chisholm, who was a, uh, he was half black, half Cherokee. He blazed a trail, later known as the Chisholm Trail, across Oklahoma through the Indian Territory from Texas to Abilene, Kansas. And that was a start. The The first, um, I don't know, the, it was only a few thousand cattle were in the first year, and that was 1867. Uh, this is two years after the end of the Civil War. But several million cattle ended up being being driven north from Texas and from Mexico, too, into these little cow towns, literally the cow towns, along the railroad of, in Kansas. 
How did they keep the cattle fed on that drive? They drove them slow. So they could just graze their way along? That was the whole idea. The, these cattle trails weren't narrow. They were miles and miles across. And the idea was that you moved them slow enough so that they actually gained weight while they were okay, moving Okay, because that's what I was thinking. It's like, oh, by the time you get to Abilene, you're going to have all these gaunt, muscular cattle that are not going to be very tasty, and they're going to be all scrawny and starved. But No. But, okay. And they had... Uh, and there was enough forage just on mm-hmm. the range. Yep. Huh. Now, the most dangerous parts were not, you know, we tend to think, oh, my gosh, the Indians in Indian territory. No, they might show up and demand a little bit of, uh, you know, a toll for crossing their land, usually paid in cattle. You know, give me a cow and I'm and we're happy. Okay. Uh, but it was crossing rivers. A lot of cowboys drowned because... They're pushing these cattle across, and if the cattle don't want to go, they they have to go out there with their horses. And if they get caught in the middle of a mass of cattle that don't want to go, and the horse, you know, they get off, you know, they're not on the horse anymore. They're trailing behind. Most of those guys didn't know how to swim. And even if you do know how to swim, if you're in with a bunch of cows that are swimming and not happy with the whole thing, uh, yeah, poor bad things happen. And a lot of these guys, you know, a lot of these young men drowned. And that's another thing. They were young. They were teenagers for the most part. The old man might be in his 20s. You might have the old cook who's coming along with him. He's a broken down old man in his 30s. And that's it. Now, you did have some guys who were much older, but not very often. Most of them were teenagers. Oh, that's... That's a young man's job. I mean, you need it a young, is. bouncy, energetic some somebody who who's tough and can has has the kids' energy for for being on the trail all yeah. day, every day, sleeping rough, mm-hmm. eating for rock, two nasty food. Yeah, just being out in the elements. Yeah, working hard every day. Oh yeah, because uh, drowning was actually the second most common form of uh, of death to cowboys. Pneumonia was the first. Because you're outside all the time, you know, for months at a time there. And um, these young men, you know, they had it rough. And the third, of course, was being killed by your horse, your own horse. Sometimes they'd be killed by a cow, but usually it's your own horse. Uh, one of the reasons for cowboy boots having high, uh, high heels was so when you jammed your foot in the stirrup, your foot wouldn't go all the way through the stirrup. Because if your foot goes all the way through the stirrup and you get unhorsed, you're dead because that horse is going to kick you to death trying to get this thing away from it. Uh, the saddle is going to slip off the side and, yeah, you're going to be drugged to death and kicked to death. And that, that happened plenty. So, you know, even with good cowboy boots, that could still happen. So, yeah, according to what my research says is that in five years, over a million head of cattle had been driven up the trail by Texan and New Mexican cow or and Mexican cowboys, not New Mexican, but Texas and Mexican cowboys. Um, that's just to Abilene. There were new towns that strung up um, along the rail line, each one a little bit closer to Texas, and each one wanted to be the end of the trail. And they not only provided the uh, creature comforts for the cattle, <laughs> such as, you know, large pens, uh, large uh, pens and whatnot for them to, to be housed in but before they got stuck on the um, rail cars and shipped up to Chicago, but also 
you have a large transient population of single males with money in their pocket because they get paid off at the end of the trail. And anything and everything that could cater to their tastes and take their money was provided. Well, sure. Smart entrepreneur would be ready to take their money. Uh-huh. Uh, entrepreneuresses, etc. Right. And so and, and so, where are we at this point, year-wise? When, when are we? We're talking, the first one was a uh, major cattle drive to Kansas was 1867. And I think the last one was in the mid-1880s, like 85 or 86. So it didn't last very long. It was oh. less than 20 years. Huh. And the whole cowboy thing really... Open range was only about 25 years. And it, but it really didn't take them long to develop this into a, a traditional kind of a culture. Thing, right. It, it, it like. moved pretty fast. Yeah. Uh, so we're already coming up on a half an hour here. Mm-hmm. And I'm guessing you have a lot more. I've got to a lot talk more to about. talk about. So I think we're going to make this a two parter. Okay. So we're going to. So basically, what we've got is the background and the development of of cowboy technique, what we mm-hmm. think of today as American cowboy techniques, mm-hmm. where that came from, and the whole setup, the start of the, the the famous big cattle drives, the Chisholm Trail, and all, that whole thing. And now we're all set to talk about what developed into classic, mm-hmm. the classic cowboy culture, the classic American cowboy, who he was, where these guys came from. Mm-hmm. They They, you know... Oh, uh, you know, just they, they weren't all little boys and they weren't no. all Americans. No, no. And that's one of the things I do want to get into is how um, at least a quarter of the cowboy population was either Mexican or black. Mm-hmm. Uh, Texas, I mean, Texas was a slave state and they weren't going to put make those guys not. They weren't going to put them to good use. Mm-hmm. And in fur- the further west you go, the more of the horse culture you had. And so you had uh, a large number of, uh, of black cowboys. And in fact, today, there's a very large black cowboy culture. They have their own rodeos. Uh, I was privileged enough to be able to meet and work with the uh, the black cowboy, I guess it, they call it Negro Cowboy Rodeo Champion of 1949. And he was a cool customer. Let me tell you, he was a neat old guy. Been there and done that. Yeah, everything. <laughs> okay, well, yeah, let's go ahead and just pick this up again next week and go go on with basically start at the peak, you know, where things are kicking off in the 1860s and take it all the way up through the turn of the century. All up, right. And uh, we'll just finish it off that way. We will do that. Okay. Okay. All right, well, thanks for listening, everybody. Show notes for this episode can be found at psychon.fm slash THF76. If you enjoy this show, be sure to check out the other fine shows in the Psychon Network. Now, the history files wouldn't be possible without your support. Help us defray some of our show costs by visiting our store, Zazzle. Even easier and super helpful to us are ratings and reviews. We really appreciate stars or even a short review at iTunes or wherever you get our shows. It's tangible feedback and helps grow our audience. Also, I'm pretty excited to announce the launch at long last of our YouTube channel. Uh, Be sure and subscribe so you don't miss out on video content as we launch it as we go along. Our trailer for the History Files is already up as the welcome video. And I hope to have new things uploaded at least a couple times a month. Right now, as I mentioned earlier, I'm cutting together 
uh, really cool gun talk Gordon did on Firearms of the Wild West a few years ago. And uh, if we get enough subscribers, we can have a decent URL instead of the current string of alphabet soup. So share the heck out of that thing. So thank you very much for joining us again this week. And please join us again next week for another exciting episode of The History Files. The History Files is brought to you by Bad Cat Productions, a proud member of the SciCon Podcast Network. For show notes, more episodes, or to join the conversation on Slack, visit us at scicon.fm slash THF. We also invite you to consider supporting this and our other fine shows by visiting our Patreon page at patreon.com slash where a pledge of even $1 a month will help keep us on the air. Bad cat. Meow.